Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Um, We want to talk about something that it behooves us to talk about, and it behooves you to think about at the beginning of every year, especially. And that that's as we're thinking, what should we get done this year that we haven't done in a while? Our to-do list. So we all have those lists, those goals that we create. And I know statistically that a substantial percentage of you have not done any estate planning. So I think that we would be derelict if we didn't come to this topic at the beginning of the year and talk about it and and emphasize to those of you who haven't done it why you should do it and some thoughts to 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 consider as you think about what should my plan be how do I approach this whole project others of you will talk about some things that may perhaps inspire you to to make a change in something you've done many years ago that perhaps maybe isn't as valid today as it was so we want to to kind of bring to the forefront of your mind things that are among the most important things we can do as responsible adults, especially as we age. I mean, the probabilities being what they are. Right. So especially as we age. And it would it just is essential that we take the time today and we talk a little bit about estate planning. And believe it or not, it is possible for this subject to be interesting. It's a challenge, but but it, it it's... It, We've done it before and made it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Hang with us. Hang with us. And I guarantee you this. We'll talk about some things that are very important to you and that and that can have um, a dramatic effect in terms of your peace of mind and the knowledge that that what you've done, the way you've spent your life, is going to, to see its best application. That maybe that's the way to think about it. And that's a huge peace of mind that estate planning gives you that when not a lot of other things in life right. do. So with that, we uh, we have a guest on. It'll not surprise you to to know, those of you who watch regularly, Missy Manning is an attorney with uh, uh, Tucker Allen. And she's um, she deals exclusively with issues relating to estate planning. So she's the natural person to join us on this topic. Missy, thank you for taking time to be coming on board. Well, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be back. Yeah, and and I want to um, to kind of talk about the extent to which you have people who are coming in here at the beginning of the year to address these sorts of issues. I mean, it, do, do people truly at the first of the year in January often think, gee, this is something I need to do? Like a New Year's resolution? Exactly. We do get quite a few people who either have a New Year's resolution to get it done or it was their last year's New Year's resolution and they're just kind of finally trickling in now. It's a little late. But yeah. coming in at 13 months down the road, but... Better late than never. Or yeah. after spending time with their family, noticing who's there, who's no longer with them, they start to think about these things um, and come in and make a plan. Yeah, so things that go down between Thanksgiving and Christmas mm-hmm. or Thanksgiving and New Year's. So um, that 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 is a thing where, kind of like gym memberships, where people think, you know, this is something that's important, I'm going to do it. The nice thing about this compared to gym membership is, you know, it's not something you have to do continuously. I mean, those of you who are thinking about, gee, I need to do some estate planning, this is something that can be accomplished as a project, meaning two or three visits to a lawyer maybe, at least a couple, um, and maybe three visits. But the point is, then it's done. And there's a good chance that many of you will never have to change it. 
uh, often there are some changes that people make, but uh, at least I would suspect half of our clients or Tucker Allen's clients do, you know, don't find a need for a change maybe, depending on their age. Yeah. Okay, so uh, where do we start? Let's start with kind of some fundamentals of estate planning. What are some basic ideas that people need to know when they think about planning for their incompetency, meaning when you can't run things on your own, which there's a good probability that all of us will go through some period of time in which we're incompetent. Now, some of us don't, but statistically, it has to be at least 50% sure. of the people go through some period of time. So whenever we're talking about estate planning, keep in mind, we're talking about death, of course, and that's the first thing that comes to people's mind. But we're also talking about that period of time, whether it's a month or whether it's, heaven forbid, 20 years. I mean, we don't know. Right. We don't know when it could be a stroke or whatever. And so estate planning includes both those circumstances. And I would argue that to many, for many people, that period of incompetency, when, when you're on this earth, you have bills that need to be paid, you have expenses that need to be paid, you have, you have uh, things in your life that have to get done by somebody as long as you're a living person even when you are incompetent, not to mention all the things associated with your care, decision-making and other stuff. So to me, when I think about estate planning, the most urgent reason, maybe this is selfish, but maybe the most urgent reason for me to do estate planning- I think I know what you're going to say. Is to deal with that period, is to be sure that I have somebody or, or have a plan in place for somebody to pick up where I left off which could happen in an instant. It could be a car wreck, could be a heart attack, stroke. You know, choose your example. But then, of course, I think about the things associated with, you know, the assets in, in the world that I have, who's going to assure that they end up in the right place. And, and if they end up, you know, going to my daughters, will it happen in such a way that I can assure the assets are protected? You know, I have opinions about their they're having unfettered control. I generally think that's a bad idea. And it doesn't reflect on my daughters who are, you know, they're, they're seem, they are responsible. But I believe that just generally it makes sense to have some built-in protections there that protect them from, uh, dare I say, uh, future husbands. Good point. I mean, you know, as, as a domestic relations lawyer, estate planning can deal with that stuff, right, Missy? Correct. So whenever we're talking about estate planning, we're talking about things that have a lot of ramifications and not just who your stuff is going to be handed to when you die. There's a lot more to think about. So um, kind of launch us into this discussion. Tell us, you know, how, when somebody walks in the door, how do you initiate this conversation with a new client? All right. Well, if we have a new client come in, we usually sit down and we talk about what's your family situation like. Are you single? Are you married? Are you living with a partner? Do you have kids? Are the kids old or are they underage? Are they responsible kids or do they have some issues that we may need to address? Like if they have alcohol dependence or drug dependence or... Or maybe they're special needs kids. Yeah, exactly. Financial issues. They're not responsible enough. You shouldn't they can't control their own finances. You should not have them control yours. So do the do the parents often agree on the answers to those questions? Or do you sometimes find that one parent thinks that, you know, they're fine, they'll be fine. Let's just give them the assets without these built-in controls. 
oftentimes the parents are on the same page as long as it's a nuclear family and not like a mixed family. Mm. Um, then that would complicate things. I can only imagine. My child is the better child compared to your child who doesn't have their stuff together. So things can get a little bit more complicated in a mixed family situations. But usually if it's just marriage and there are kids directly from that marriage, parents are usually on the same page about which child has their stuff together and which child does not. So then... Um, you, uh, you you present to them, uh, or you ask them, rather, I guess, a series of questions. Mm-hmm. So kind of walk us through the, the process of that meeting. Okay, so typically one of the first things we talk about is if they want a will or a trust, because oftentimes the first things they're thinking about is just death, and they haven't even considered the incapacity piece. So we usually handle uh, this decision-making on are we going with a will-based estate plan or if we're going with a trust-based estate plan. So talk a little bit about it. Sure. So a will-based estate plan, you only get a will for each person. And the will says, upon my death, I want my assets to go to this person. If there are minor children, you nominate a guardian. And then it also says, who's going to be in charge of getting the money where it's supposed to go? But a lot of people think, though, that, oh, a will is the way to plan because you get to avoid probate. Where did that rumor ever get started? I don't know. I don't know. And isn't it true with wills, they're more vulnerable to lawsuits to be unchallenged? Correct. Yeah, that's true. They are more vulnerable. But but also, and it's because of the fact that you don't avoid probate when you have a will. A will is created to go through probate. And, and maybe put better, probate was created to deal with wills. Either way you want to think about it, those things go hand, hand in glove. Hand hand, yeah. And so if you're wanting to avoid probate, you don't do it with a will. And and I know that many of you are under the impression, I understand that, it's a very common misimpression, uh, but we always have to push back against that. And when I was practicing in this area, it was a question that would come up all the time. Correct. It's one of the biggest myths out there is that if you have a will in place, you're good to go. You're going to avoid probate and things will move along smoothly. That is, in fact, the exact opposite of what happens. So explain, though, how a trust allows you to avoid the probate process. I mean, we won't go into the pro. Well, maybe we will in a few minutes. We'll talk a little bit about the probate process in a minute. But many of you know it's not a good thing. You know, it tends to be expensive, a lot of delay, et cetera. So, so how is it that a trust avoids that? So think of your trust like a basket. You create all these rules on who's going to take over, where the money is going to go, how things should be handled. Then you're going to put all your assets into the basket. So your bank accounts, for example, or your house would be owned by the trust. You still basically own it just like you would as if it was in your own name. You can sell it. You can buy things. But since it's owned by the trust, when you pass away, the trust can't die. So there's no probate. You don't own it. So there's no probate for you. And it just passes on to the next person down the the road. Yeah. So the whole idea, and you said it well, is you don't own the asset, technically speaking, when you die, if you've put it in a trust. So that, that's, that should make sense to you. In other words, things that are in your name alone, you own it. Then naturally, there's going to have to be some process in order to pass that along to whoever it's supposed to go to. And that process has to include looking at the piece of paper that purports to be your stated intentions called a will, a process to look at that and determine whether whether it's legitimate. Has someone forged your name? Was there undue influence? Mm -hmm. Was there fraud? So it makes sense that you would have a process to verify when you, of course, are 
utterly incapable of of uh, effectuating your will because you're six feet under. That's about as incapable as you can get. And so thankfully, you might say, there is a process to assure that you don't get victimized after your death in terms of, of greedy relatives or, or other people who might take advantage. So that's what probate's for. And it's also to assure that creditors get paid. So those are the two primary functions. You know, determine, uh, you know, is this document that you have legitimate and, and be sure that that's enforced. The stuff goes the people it's supposed to go to. And then the other piece is, you know, let's be sure, incidentally, before we hand out these assets to your loved ones, let's be sure creditors get paid. But but the trust avoids that because it ne- it's not in your name when you die. So the assets that are in your name when you die, naturally, they would end up in probate because you've got to change title and, right. and, and to achieve the things I just described. So that, that's the way title gets changed from your name to your two sons, for example, or daughters, uh, to change, have assets sold to pay off a creditor. All that can be done in probate. So it's a wonderful purpose it serves. In the absence of, of everything else, you know, we wouldn't want to see probate go away, um, even though it's an expensive, long, uh, painful process. And when you create a trust, um, and I know people that have had more than one trustee, and it can be kind of a disaster from, you know, situations I've seen. So if you could talk about why it's a good idea to appoint, say, one and maybe have a backup if that person can't fulfill his or her duties. Sure. So let me first clarify. A trustee is the person who manages the trust. That would be you while you're alive and you have capacity. Um, it kind of is like an executor after you pass away, but we technically call it a successor trustee. And that could be anyone. Most people choose their spouse or their kids. And sometimes they make the unfortunate decision to name more than one trustee to serve together. So if you've got twins, they might want to have both twins serving together. Now, we've seen many problems with that in the past. One of the big ones is that they just don't agree. So if they don't agree, nothing gets done or they go back and forth undoing each other's work. Um, Another problem is that they both think they're responsible for something and they both pay the bills. Then we're wasting assets or worst case scenario, neither one thinks they're responsible for something. The mortgage doesn't get paid. We're going into foreclosure because they each thought each other was responsible for paying the mortgage. So Mm -hmm. two people with equal authority is, for all those reasons, is generally not a good idea. I mean, it can work if you really have good faith in your kids that they will work together. But I would never, ever recommend it. Well, no, I know these two sisters, uh, they were co-successor trustees Uh and mom dies. Uh, One of the sisters wasn't monitoring the account and the other sister was dipping into it and basically stealing money out of it that should have gone to the other siblings. Mm -hmm. And it was... It was a mess. Yeah, and it can cause divisions in the family. Um, yeah, and it did in this family. And and, and, it, and sometimes what's necessary to avoid that is choosing a trustee from outside the family, right? Yeah, you can certainly do that. One option is to hire a corporate trustee. So, for example, we um, have a good relationship with Commerce Bank, and they have a trust department. And basically, you're hiring someone to manage your trust for you and go through all the administrative steps of selling the house, liquidating the accounts, and getting the money out to the kids in an appropriate way and trust outright whatever you decide. So this person is hired from the outside. They don't have any biases. They don't, this is like their entire job is to handle your finances responsibly. And they get something. How do they get paid? 
So the trust would pay them. So um, is it like a based on a percentage or? Yes. So it's um, they usually have a fixed schedule. Each one tells you upfront how much they're going to charge for administering your trust. It kind of depends upon the size of the trust and the amount of assets and complexity. There's a special needs trust. Obviously, that's a whole nother animal versus just a standard trust that's going out to kids. And, and while it'll vary, but they, it might be some something in the ballpark of one percent if it's assets of say, less than a million and a half, okay. uh, maybe less than two million. Don't, don't hold me to this, obviously, but just to give somebody a ballpark, if you're wondering, gee, is it 10%? Is it 5%? No, if you have enough assets, and it doesn't have to mean that you have to be very rich. Uh, and, you know, some people are thinking, well, if you have a million dollars, you're rich. But but still, a lot of people have a million dollars they consider their house. And, I'm, and I guarantee a lot of you, if you include your retirement plans and everything else, you probably have maybe, uh, a lot of you have as much as a million or a million and a half, and of course, some of you have more. So to pay, in my opinion, to pay 1% for professional management, like you described, where you know everything is being paid on time in the proper way, plus they're managing the assets, I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, Gives you peace of mind. Yeah, yeah, because is it better to pay a little more in order to have professional management. And with that comes the lawyers to be sure things are done legally. With that comes accountants. With that comes uh, insurance, meaning if they if they do something wrong, if they make a mistake, there's a deep pocket. If it's Uncle Bill or if it's that, that wayward child, you're just going to have a lot of bad blood for decades because they can't get back the money. Right. It was mismanaged. It may not have been intentional. It could have been with the best of intentions. So I'm, I'm kind of making an argument, as you can tell, because I think, I think for those who can afford it, who have enough assets to where it might make sense, I think you should consider it if, if you see any potential for conflict like like you were describing, could occur in families. Correct. So if you don't have a good fit or a really good choice, someone that you would really trust to manage everything, going with outside help is a great idea. So you you mentioned about uh, trustees, and you said you can have one or a panel. In answer to your question, you can have one or a panel. But the trustee's job is to run the run the, the trust to do the things that, that the, the decedent, that you, you're the client who created it. So you're called the trustor, for lack of a term. Do you use trustor or do you use settlor? Um, so technically, settlor is in the Missouri Code. We often use just grantor, though. Grantor, I've heard that. Now okay. we thoroughly confused you. Yeah. But anyway, so those <laughs> are just... They'll be Googling those words. Those are just words, though, used for, for you, the client who comes in and wants to create it. So that people are clear, and I know we're may, for some who understand this, this may seem a little boring, but I'd rather err on the side of repetition maybe or being too elementary than being too complex. So um, s- tell us then a little bit more before this third party kicks in, whoever we've decided that takes over when we can't do it. Explain the idea that from the time the client creates the trust and and talk a little bit about what we put in it, services of assets and all that go in it and deciding what to go in it. And then who's ex- talk a little bit more about who's in charge until you have that stroke or you have some event in your life, until something happens where, where we, we're no longer the trustee and the person we've named to come after. Talk a little bit about that phase so people get 
the the mechanics. Okay, so once you've created your trust, basically you've woven your basket and you've signed on the dotted line, then you need to make certain that you put all your assets in the trust and we walk you through that process. So once you get all your assets into your basket, then you just continue living life normally. You are the trustee in addition to being the grantor or settler, whatever you want to call it. So you're responsible for managing the trust and you're the person who created it. So you do essentially whatever you want with your trust. It's still all under your control. So if you decide you want to buy a new house and sell your current one, even if it's in the trust, you can do that. Yeah, and you're doing it as the trustee for your trust. So you get to wear two hats. But then a time may come and will come uh, when suddenly there may be another trustee and it could be on the happening of what events would trigger that change a trustee? So oftentimes, um, incapacity is a big one. If you can't manage your finances and you obviously can't manage the trust's finances, in which case you will have had a list put together on who you want to be your successor trustee. Remember, it's kind of like an executor and that person will step into your shoes as trustee and manage all the assets in the trust for your benefit. So all of your money gets used for you and great at the end of the day, if there's money left over, it goes to your beneficiaries, your kids, whoever that might be. But while you're alive, the money in the trust gets used for you. Okay. And uh, and and then when somebody takes over as trustee, it could be that the client is just voluntarily saying, you know, I'm just not keeping things straight anymore. I can't handle this right. anymore. So it doesn't have to be that you've had some catastrophic events. It could be just that that you decide that you don't want to be the trustee anymore for yourself, that you see you're failing in some ways to do things as well as perhaps you did at one time. So so you can just voluntarily resign as trustee and let the person you've named to be your successor take over. And you have the peace of mind and knowing that they're making those decisions and they have the authority. So what security, though, does a person have, though, when they put somebody in that driver's seat? They're probably thinking, that's a little scary. So they have a fiduciary duty to follow your directions in the trust, which sounds like a really scary thing to say. But basically, they have to do what you put in the trust. They have to follow it to the letter of the law. And if they decide not to follow it, then they could get in very big trouble and owe back money. They can be kicked off as trustee. Criminal Uh, trouble even? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. It could be criminal. Uh, So it is a serious responsibility. Somebody who agrees to be your trustee, um, it's probably good you should pay them something. Now, if they're a beneficiary, you probably don't need to uh, because they're, they're getting this gift right, that you're making to them. But absent that, um, as you said, they're taking on this very solemn responsibility in the law. A fiduciary is the highest standard of care that we recognize of one person to another in our economy, in our legal system. That's the reason, for example, you, you, there's been this debate for the last, oh, seven or eight years especially, when there's talk of making financial advisors fiduciaries anybody who's handling stock investments, et cetera. So the reason they fought that is not that they don't want to be loyal, but they don't want to be loyal to a standard that's so high that if they're benefiting at all from the transaction, then they then the burden is even higher for them to show that it made sense. And those of you who are listening think, well, of course, that's what we should expect. But, but it means that if you're somebody who works in that field, it means the standard's so high you couldn't make recommendations for certain purchases and products and stuff. So 
um, while in some ways it's a good good thing, I can see where somebody in the in the profession could regard themselves as being very ethical and and do think about their clients, but are fearful that that they may make a recommendation that that they cannot defend if ever challenged by this very high standard of selflessness. And it's asking a lot for the person on the other side of the table to be selfless in what they recommend to you, and in in particularly when they're paid commissions based on your engaging in this activity or they get commissions if you buy certain products like life insurance or annuities especially. Anyway, so fiduciary is a big deal, and, and a person who's a trustee is a fiduciary. So um, they, they, it, it, certainly if they misbehave, it could clearly have, it would have criminal implications right, depending on right. what it was. Can I give an example? Yes, I would, please. We love stories. Okay, so we had an elderly woman client who had a couple of kids. The kids all did not get along, and she named one child as her successor trustee. She became incapacitated. She was living in a nursing home. There was some debate on whether she would ever be able to return to her own home, but we knew it would be a long time before that point. So the successor trustee, her daughter, decided to rent the house to her own child, so the grandchild of the grantor, um, for what she thought was market rate. So that way, you know, grandma was still getting money coming in and the house wasn't sitting empty. And so that's legal to do that. Yes, that's a good idea. On its face, on its face. Yeah, go ahead. However, it ends up that she violated her fiduciary duty because the amount she was charging in rent to her daughter was not in fact a market price. It ended up being a, a couple hundred dollars lower than what market price was. So the siblings sued her for breach of fiduciary duty because they wanted that extra money there. So wow. that is a situation where she thought it was fine. It was a pretty good amount of rent. She wasn't letting them live there for free, but she did not do enough research to say that this is actually market price. She didn't have like a real estate agent come in and appraise the rental value. Was she removed then? Yep. Something tells me they didn't have a great Thanksgiving family. Uh, Yeah. No, it is very unfortunate. They had a bunch of orders of protection and it just really, really really got. So wait now, wait. So, um, who replaced this this one daughter? So at this point, um, the the grantor, the grandma, passed away. So at that point, we ended up she the daughter just stepped down and it ended up being on her own. Okay, yes, it wasn't just because things got a little messy there. She didn't want to keep going. She had tried her best and in good faith to do all of these things. So so who distributed, did, did the trust call for things to be immediately distributed or was it to be paid out over time? It was to be immediately distributed. And I believe they ended up hiring outside counsel to run and become the trustee for them just after all wind, of this lawsuit. Just to wind it up. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Wow. Because uh, otherwise, you know, if there were a plan to pay out over time and to manage the money, then they'd have to bring in a third party, which that would be an institutional trustee case, I assume. Mm-hmm. So... It ended up being quite a mess, but that is an example of fiduciary duty. It absolutely has to be in that person's best interest and not what you just think is in their best interest. So who's policing this trustee? Would it be the other beneficiaries usually? Generally, those are the people that go and complain about it and file a lawsuit or talk to the police okay. or whatever it is. And, and they're entitled to periodic uh, reports. Quarterly, I believe, yeah. right? So it's, it, I mean, the statute, it may require quarterly. I know at least annually. Mm-hmm. And so 
it, there's no question that that uh, there's accountability for uh-huh. the trustee, because, and it and it is the beneficiaries who are riding herd on it. They even have a duty to be notified if there's any chance that they could be, like for example, a contingent beneficiary. They may not know about it. So you know the the uniform trust code requires that they get a notification. Okay. Now I have a question. So someone typically that say serves as a trustee. Typically, do they also serve as that person's medical power of attorney, or is that usually somebody else? It can be very different people. So it just kind of depends upon their family situation. Um, We'll take me, for example, here. So my husband and I are co-trustees of our own trust, but I did not choose him to be my primary person on my medical power of attorney. After talking about it with him, we discussed that I didn't want to continue living if there was no further hope. I want my plug to be pulled. And he said he could never do that to me. So my choice is not actually to put my husband as my yeah, healthcare power attorney. Right, right. He's my co-trustee. I trust him completely with our finances. But if someone's going to have to pull the plug, it's not going to be my He doesn't husband. want to do it. Okay, I can understand that. He's too close to yeah. the situation, meaning you. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so you, who did you choose? A family member? I went with my mom, ironically. She's the one who's like, I'll pull that plug, no problem. <laughs> yeah, you might choose a beneficiary who stands to, to be uh, well compensated for my. But at some point, though, you're going to have to choose somebody else as you get older Correct. because, you know, children typically outlive their parents. Mm-hmm. So you are going to want to choose somebody else. Correct. Then your mother, yeah. Usually you have a lineup. So in case my mom's not able to do it, I have a couple of people in order after her. Okay. Yeah, that's an important thing for people to know is that is that you 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 don't typically choose one successor. Usually if you can, you choose a one, two, and three just to allow for possibilities. And even then, a trust will often not fail because a court can appoint a trustee and they stand perfectly willing to because they'll assume that the the settlor or the trustor would want that. So often it, the, a trust won't fail if you run out of listed trustees. That's interesting that usually, usually you don't see families file the lawsuit route, at least during the in the trust. And, and talk a little bit about the fact there is a lot more litigation with wills than trusts. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Try to help people understand a little bit why that's true. So with a will, everything gets filed in probate court, which is all public information. So anyone can come in and see a copy of the will. Anyone can come in and see what money is coming in and out and what assets there are. After the person dies and the will is filed, right? Correct. Because it's not filed before that. Mm -hmm. So if you disinherited a child... They can still find out about that. They can get access and see what things are happening. And they can butt in there and say, well, clearly my mom wasn't in her right mind when she made this will cutting me out. So just the public nature itself right there lends itself to greater conflict. And it's already, it's kind of teed up for litigation because it's already pending in a court, a probate court. But it's pending. So you're kind of invited that... It, it's a declaration of the world that, look, if you have something to say on this, if you're a creditor or even another claimant, such as a beneficiary, if you have some complaint, come here and let us know, and you have a deadline to do that. So it's really a uh, an invitation on a silver platter, sort of, for those who are disgruntled to come forward and file some claim to allege there was undue influence, there was fraud, whatever. Um, whereas... 
contrast that with a situation with a trust. So a trust is a private document. It should never be filed with circuit court or anyone like that unless for something goes terribly wrong. Um, and the only people who are entitled to receive a copy of that trust are the people listed in there as the beneficiaries. So if you've cut out one child completely, the trustee has no obligation to give them a copy of that trust. They, there's no forum for them to come in and complain about it. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good word to use for them. So that a trust is is a um, an arrangement in which you've delegated your assets to this. Um, I'll call it an entity when it's really just a relationship with your trustee, who's to do things on your behalf to dispose of the assets to manage them as you as you instructed them to. So there's no court involved, and somebody's got to really want to to litigate. And, and they have to have a lot of information they wouldn't otherwise have to go to the right courthouse, which they have to do that. They have to go to the right courthouse, and they have to file a claim in the right court. And it means hiring a lawyer and going to a lot of trouble that, that while you'd still have to have a lawyer, not necessarily, but generally you'll have a lawyer in probate, there's not a paved road with direction signs for you to do that. And whereas with... Uh, there, there is not when you're talking about a trust, whereas what, what there is if we're talking about some form of probate. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons. We're not, you and I are not saying you can't cause mischief if you're, if you're a beneficiary or left out in a trust. But I can tell you statistically, there are f- far fewer cases of litigation involving trusts than there are wills. Far fewer. It's just more difficult. And, and one can argue it's a different standard, too. Now, that'll vary from state to state. But there, many have argued that there's a different standard for evaluating you know, whether a trust is valid or not than there is for a will. The, the execution requirements, all those formalities, even if you're not a lawyer, you know there's lots of formalities assigning a will. You have to have three witnesses, depending on the state, and they have to sign in your presence. Some states require that each witness has heard you audibly say, this is my last will and testament. And if they didn't hear that, then often that can invalidate it. Many, often the notary has to also observe uh, not only the three signatures, but they have to hear the person. There's all sorts of craziness if you looked at the case law dealing with with executing wills over the centuries. Um, Those things are not associated with trust. Correct. In Missouri, we usually just do a notary. You don't have to have witnesses there. Yeah, almost like a, you you would a contract or a real estate, for example, mm-hmm. transaction. And so, too, you can put a clause in there, and we've talked about this before. So, if somebody wants to challenge the trust, that clause, you know, might say, "Okay, you're cut out if you challenge it." Correct. So we talked about this before, but um, you can always say that if someone claims that when you set up your trust, you were unduly influenced or you didn't have um, the capacity at the time to set up the trust, they would lose out on whatever share that they would have received if they decided to go forth and challenge it. However, the enforceability of those clauses are always kind of in question, but the fact that it's in there itself is dissuades people from bringing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It um, depends a little bit on the judge. Uh, courts are a little bit uncomfortable, although it is the law, and clearly you can put in a no contest clause, and it should be enforced if it's executed correctly. But still, there are judges who will look for 
you know, something to be not as painful. There are some judges who will interpret the, the statute to mean that if there's not a valid claim or a reason to suspect, then uh, they they would uh, they would then enforce it, whereas they wouldn't if if there were other circumstances that made it a legitimate complaint. Another would be if you challenge it and win. Of course, they would argue it's not enforceable. So uh, they, that can go either way. But th- should you use those if you don't want it to be? Yes, you should. You should definitely use them. Uh, but it does mean you need to allow for some compensation to be going to that person or some inheritance. Otherwise, you have no leverage. There's nothing for them to lose. So you have to give them something so that when you add the no contest clause, mm-hmm. it creates this incentive for them to to not uh, uh, challenge it. So what about the question of, okay, you've they've created this trust. They have adult kids. And maybe their, their kids don't have a special need. Um, so often that I recall is that clients would say, well, gee, why don't I just always distribute the assets here and now? Now, a few minutes ago, i suggested some reasons to not do that, but we should While take, they're alive. Yeah, 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 while they're alive. So, well, no, no. Even even uh, after the death of the testator or rather the settlor, after you have gone, I'm suggesting that there are a lot of good reasons for not distributing those assets to them at that time in in lump sum. Uh, now, I know from experience that at least 50% of you, probably more, will insist on just distributing it. But I, wanted, I want to at least have you think about the implications of that a little more than I suggested a few moments ago, a big reason, like divorce. But there are various things. So talk a little bit about... Uh, why you would you would suggest to some clients that they consider at least, uh, even though their children are healthy or no, let's assume they have no drug addictions. If they do, then certainly you know they they're going to be more open to considering having the funds managed and paid out over time. Talk about that as an option and what are some good reasons to do it. Okay, so we'll contrast it. The first option is lump sum distribution where they just get a check at the end of the day and they can go spend that money however they want. If they have creditors, the creditors could take that money, but, you know, it's theirs and they can do what they want with it. The other option is to leave it in trust for them forever. So, or some point in or between. Or some point in between. Um, the money sits in that trust, and they can have access to that trust only for their needs. So they could pay the mortgage. They can go to school. They can use the money for buying a nice, reasonable car. But they couldn't turn around and use the money for buying the pool boy a Ferrari or <laughs> their new spouse or um, other things like that. Having that control and limiting it to being in the trust over an extended period of time, you give some asset protection to them because they couldn't get it themselves. So if they have creditors that really want their money, if you gave them that check in the outright distribution, that money would be gone. It would just go straight to the creditors. Having it in trust forever means that they, the creditors don't have access to that money. They couldn't take it. You can still use that money for their benefit to pay the mortgage and all that other stuff. Another one is divorce, like we talked about. So if they're going to be divorcing their spouse or they're not on good terms with their spouse, that money is inaccessible to their spouse. It doesn't even come through on a um, divorce proceeding because it's not owned by that person who's going through the divorce. Therefore, it's not a factor. Yeah, yeah, the court wouldn't have jurisdiction over it if it were not a marital asset, uh, generally speaking. So it's important to to think about, you know, do you 
do you want to give a benefit to your children over a long period of time? And of course, if it's a small amount of money, that's that's relevant in this decision. Uh, but another thing that that is relevant is is there the opportunity to give them something that, as you said, they couldn't give themselves. So the advantage of of keeping it in the trust and having it managed is that they can still enjoy access to it when they need it. But at the same time, they would they would not have to live in fear that. Gee, if there's a divorce, they're going to lose half of it. They wouldn't have to worry about a bankruptcy or a bad investment deal or a lawsuit. I mean, we know that personal injury lawsuits happen all the time. You don't have to be a business person to be vulnerable to those. So all those financial risks that that hover around us all in the modern world, you can largely insulate them from that risk by choosing to not hand out the money all at one time, but rather to pay it out under whatever terms and conditions you choose. There's a million ways to do it. You know, you, you, there's no single size shoe that fits everyone on this. Some people would, would have it paid out regularly over time. Some would, would give discretion to the trustee, whoever that is, presumably not them. It wouldn't be them. It would be a a third party that was not one of the beneficiaries. Uh, but, but it would give them discretion. And if they have discretion to choose, then it really, provides the best asset protection that you can possibly have from third parties because literally that if they're sued then your son or daughter would go to court and say I don't have authority to tell the trust to pay out the money there could be 10 million dollars in there 100 million dollars and 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 yet you can have your son or daughter truthfully say to anybody trying to collect money from right. them, including a divorce court Look, I have no control over this money. I cannot instruct the trustee to pay it out. Those are not the terms of the trust. So it means, though, that you write the trust in such a way to think about maximizing asset protection. And and keep in mind, as you said, there's that this is not something they could choose to do for themselves. It it's very hard for them to receive the money and then create a trust like this that would give them that protection. Then, because it's it's a a self created trust, it doesn't have the sort of invincibility that a trust does that's created for them by a third party. And you're the third party, so you've created a trust for them. So it really is bulletproof in a way that it wouldn't be if they tried to do it for themselves. And incidentally. We would all have incentives to do that for ourselves, right? If we had, if we had suddenly a million dollars, you know, to the extent that we could go down the street and create such a trust for ourselves, we would all be incentivized to do that because it's the best of all worlds. Uh, but we can't. The law won't allow you in a self-created trust to be able to create create that sort called a self-settled trust. With a self-settled trust, to be able to create that sort of protection. And we can see why it seems kind of self-serving that we get to go put it in this trust and then, you know, somebody comes to collect money from us and, and we say, sorry, guys, I put it in the trust. So there are very strict rules on that and lots of limitations for when people try to do that for themselves. But this is a third-party trust. You have the ability to give this gift to your loved one. And, and this is a gift they can't give themselves. So I'm suggesting you think about it. It's not about whether your loved one has drug problems or money management problems. If they have those things, then I shouldn't even have to make this argument to you. <laughs> yeah. Then hopefully you see that there are advantages to not putting all this in their hands. Uh, but I'm talking to those of you who who don't have children that have problems, as you might define them, or we might define them. But instead, they seem stable and, and well-adjusted, et cetera. Um, 
I still think you can do better than just dumping it in their lap for all those reasons I mentioned and, and more. Very and, true. Yeah. And I, I, how, what percent of our clients choose that? A minority, I know. It is a minority. It also kind of depends upon the office and location. So some of our areas, they lean more towards the outright distribution. It's more traditional that route. Other offices, they might have a higher population that are more sophisticated that lean more towards doing a lifetime trust. Yeah, yeah. And the amount of money is a little relevant. It, I mean, if somebody's talking about distributing $100,000 or three kids, they're going to view it differently than if it's a million or more. So right. let's take a couple of minutes then and talk a little bit about cost. Okay. And I know that we can't talk with real precision because it varies, but give it, give people who are watching this some idea what it costs to do this. All right. So for a married couple coming in to do a trust and all of the documents that go along with a trust to plan for incapacity, like a financial power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney. So basically the entire package of everything you would need with a trust, we're talking around $3,000, give or take. Kind of depends upon what your assets are. You got more going on or less going on. And that would include like a durable power of attorney. Correct. Uh, which we didn't spend a lot of time talking about that. But that's huge. It ties in when we talked about you could have a stroke or something and you want somebody to take over. So one of the tools to do that is a durable power of attorney. Mm-hmm. So um, but around 3000 bucks mm-hmm. for for everything that we've talked about. Correct. Everything uh, you would need for your death or incapacity. I yeah. think it's well worth it. Yeah. And I, I don't want this to sound like an infomercial because uh, we don't. You no. know, those of you who've watched this show for years now know that we don't we don't do infomercials. So uh, even when we have people on with with uh, Tucker Allen, you know, we we try not to make it an infomercial. Of course, we want you to come do business with us. But if anybody, I'll say this to you: if anybody is offering to do, provide all these things we talked about for less than three thousand bucks, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying be suspicious. Is ju- just be cautious because it requires a lot of. Of of hands on attention and it, and it, and you want it to be individualized because after all you are individuals and and the probability is that that you, there are things you're going to want that will be perfectly suited to your situation. So if somebody offers you something much below that in price, uh, I'm not saying it's impossible for it for them to be just a generous person, uh, professional, but I would just question it because I know how much time it takes to do this. And, uh, and you should expect to spend somewhere in that, in the ballpark of that could be more, uh, but, but something in that ballpark, um, whether it's with Tucker Allen or another domestic or another firm that does exclusively, let me emphasize that you should go with a firm that does exclusively, True. uh, this sort of planning and there are others around, uh, but obviously I'm very proud and prejudiced toward, uh, in favor of Tucker Allen. But uh, in any case, I hope that we've persuaded you, whoever you go to, that you'll go to somebody and take care of that this month. And then you can relax for the rest of the year and thereafter. So, all right. uh, This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next week, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.